Well, you'd have to have your head buried pretty far in the sand today not to know that these are troubled times that we live in. Our national debt has continued to increase an average of almost, are you ready, $4 billion every day since September of 2007. $4 billion every day. You can go online and you can just watch the numbers go. It's, it's terrifying. It recently passed the $15 trillion mark of debt. That's just our government's debt. The total and actual U.S. indebtedness, public indebtedness, is something more like 54 to $57 trillion. That means that if you distributed that evenly, that that each household in America is responsible for $660,000 worth of debt. And every individual, Alex, Cheryl, and whoever's baby was most recently born, is responsible for 174,000 and some change of debt. And it doesn't really work out quite like that in actuality. We're not all equally responsible, except that we are. We're not equally responsible, except that we are. Understand, this is, a, this is a weight on our nation's shoulders. When you look at the maps by color of where the debt is, America is bright red. And in, on top of that, the depression, or the, uh, the uh, unemployment rate is like inching up towards post-depression high. China is upwardly mobile and coming online and the lights are popping over there. Iran is said to be getting a nuclear weapon. Europe is imploding. There's a growing sense in this country that America's position in the world is changing for the worse. Meaning that our comforts and perquisites are changing for the worse. And while there are many different theories about what we should be doing about this, nobody thinks, at least in this country, that this is a good thing, right? It's a good thing that Joni is responsible for $660,000 of debt. Nobody thinks that's a good thing. All eyes are where? On the economy. Forget abortion. Forget morality. Forget green initiatives. It's just the economy right now. Next year, America is going to elect the man she believes has the best plan for getting our financial system back on track. But I don't think many of us have any confidence that that's even humanly possible. $57 trillion of debt. Is that even possible? And I get the sense that most of us are readying ourselves for something akin to the fall of Rome. Last time I was home, God bless him, my family was talking. All the talk was about 22 long rifle bullets being the new currency when the, when the fall of Rome comes. And we just need to stockpile 22 long rifle shells. They're dead serious. They're doing it. They joke about it, but they're doing it. Psalm 49, our scripture lesson for this morning, this is our text for the sermon. Psalm 49 was written for just such a time as this. An unstable time. 
a time when work is scarce, when the gap between the rich and the poor is widening, when food prices are rising, home values are dropping, a time when people all over the world are camping out in front of banks and stock exchanges, protesting the financial collapse of society or decline of society, a time when it takes Two, not one, household incomes just to maintain the status quo, just the average life in America. Nothing fancy, just average. Two incomes. A time when national security is shaken, when our sense of entitlement is threatened, when, when we wonder what the world is going to be like tomorrow. And that's just the economic, worldly concerns there's also a spiritual reality to it that in the church are charlatans who are eating you up. Eating the church's money up. Flying in big jets. Living like Al Gore, you know. Hip, the hypocrisy of Al Gore is, is equal only in the church. And many Christian leaders today. You know, the hypocrisy of Al Gore. You know what I'm talking about? Flying around in the, in the jet, spending the next number of dollars of fuel and, and, and then caring for the environment, you know. It's the same thing spiritually in the church. The fleecing of the church by wolves in sheep's clothing. A time when the hearts of men are gripped with anxiety, anger, and fear. Our time, today. You, me. This is a psalm for us. It's an unusual psalm. It's more a sermon than it is a prayer of praise. Meaning that it's not something that the Levites sang to God. It's something that they sang from God. It's prophecy. It's a sermon. It's God's word being proclaimed to you. Most psalms are, have an element of that, but they're generally us saying something to God. This is God speaking to us. What is the purpose of this divine message? Well, it's twofold. It's given to rebuke the men of this world for their sin and foolishness in setting their hearts on the things of this world. And to persuade them to seek things in a better one. To seek the things of the hereafter. To concern themselves with eternity. It's a rebuke to worldly-minded people. And, second purpose, is to be a comfort to the rest of us. Who are trying to live in opposition to all of that. It's given as a comfort to God's people in reference to the trouble and grief that comes from the wickedness of worldlings surrounding us. Worldlings. That's a word that Microsoft Word does not recognize. It's highlighted in red and throughout my file of this sermon. And I'm not going to change it. I'm not going to change the setting because I want to remember something about the word worldling. That it has been lost. That we don't have this word anymore. Worldling. What is a worldling? 
A person who lives only for this life with no thought given to the next. Know any worldlings? It's, you can be, this is the tragedy of American religion, of evangelical religion. You can, you can be a worldling and be a Christian. It's perfectly in harmony. It's, it's, there's nothing wrong with that, apparently. You go into Christian bookstores, and what do they sell you? I went in recently to the new one here in town, just so I could say I went, and I checked it out. And, of course, there's all the kitsch and all of the stuff that you can hang on your walls that's forgivable to some degree. The thing that is not forgivable is that the first books that you see there are Joel Osteen and his new book, something like Everyday Friday or something like this. Live like it's Friday. Have Friday every day mentality. Every day of Friday, that's what it's called. What is that? Every day of Friday. It's just worldliness. It's complete worldliness. He is a worldling. He's one of the guys that flies on the jets. And we sell it in the Christian bookstore. Probably in many Christian bookstores in churches. In contrast to worldlings are those who live for the next life. Worldlings live for this one. God's people live for the next one. They set their minds on things above, not on things of the earth. They store up eternal treasures in heaven, not trinkets here that are passing away and moth and rust corrupt and thieves steal. God's people know that the time has been shortened and so they weep as though they did not weep and they rejoice as though they did not rejoice and they buy as though they did not possess and they use the world as though they did not make full use of it knowing that this world is passing away. That's what scripture says of God's people. God's people live in poverty here. Blessed are the poor in spirit. God's people live in poverty in a very real sense in this world so that they can be wealthy in the world to come. We don't live for today. We don't live every day Friday. That's not our hope. We don't hope in a Florida retirement. We live for 10,000 billion trillion years from now. And this makes us very, very, very weird, smelly, strange. This puts us at complete odds with the world's systems, with the world's mindsets, with the world's world's values. We are poor, wayfaring strangers here. And there is no box to check for that demographic on the world's form. Poor wayfaring stranger. We're strangers. We're exiles. We're aliens. Illegal aliens. 
as far as the world's systems are concerned. We do not compute and fit in. We're, we're dangerous, antagonistic, threatening to the world. And we suffer because of this. We're despised. We're resented. We're marginalized. We are not given a voice. Anybody who's been down to the city council to protest the funding of Planned Parenthood, which clearly, objectively, does not need our funding. Make a billion dollars a year or something like that. <laughs> Seriously. Carol, if she, is she in here? She would know the, the figure. Somebody in here knows the figure. They don't need support from our community, from our tax dollars, but they get it. We go down there and protest. We have our say, but do we have our say? Does anybody care? No. You don't have a voice. We're poor. Really? Not really. We're in America and they don't let you be poor. But we're poor. Maybe if we started writing, maybe if we sent Tim away to write a book like Every Day Friday, It's Friday or As Friday, we could afford enough space for our children to have Sunday school. I mean, this is, a, this is an amazingly huge building, but this is nothing compared to the standard, the norm in evangelical churches. This, we, it's not even adequate for us. It's almost not adequate. It's very uncomfortable, and we're very worried about what we're going to do to take care of our children, to teach them God's word. There's just not space here. We're poor. We suffer in a very real, in lots of ways, for our heavenly mindedness in this world. At the hands of worldlings. And because we suffer for the sake of Christ, we need encouragement. And that's what this psalm is. Encouragement. To pilgrims. To strangers and exiles. So on the one hand, Psalm 49 is a call to worldlings to stop living for this world and start preparing for the next one. And on the other hand, it's a message of comfort and encouragement for God's people who live as aliens and strangers in a foreign land. Let's look at it together. Verse 1. Hear this, all peoples. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world. Clearly, something of the utmost importance is about to be said. We know this from the fact that absolutely no one is excluded in the address. It concerns everyone in this world. He doesn't say, hear this, people of Israel. He doesn't say, hear this, you Canaanite heathens. Hear this if you're a Protestant, if you're an evangelical Protestant. Hear this if you're a member of Clear Note Church and you're the kind of person who already wants to hear what I'm going to tell you. Growing up, my parents used this expression, others may, but you cannot. 
And I have never been able to wrap my head around what that means. It's supposed to like help me understand why I'm not allowed to participate in some kind of activity that I want to participate in. But it's a very confusing statement. Others may. May? Why? But you cannot. Well, why? <laughs> it just doesn't, it does not helpful. <laughs> understand that this psalm is not at all like that. This isn't an as-for-me-in-my-house kind of moment. This is not a personal and private matter. It's not an internal memo. It's a universal command to all people at all times, everywhere. Hear this, Greece. Hear this, Italy. Hear this, European Union. Hear this, China. Hear this, Japan, Southeast Asia. Hear this, Africa. Hear this, South America and Mexico. Hear this, New York, Boston, Chicago, Los Angeles. Hear this, Bloomington. Hear this, Camp Occupy Bloomington. Hear this, Clear Note Church. Hear this, Paul Lukey, Jeff Ewer. Emily Ewer, everyone here. No exceptions. Listen to me. What authority. Who does this psalmist think he is? Not even Apple is this ambitious. Sure, they'd love to sell an iPad to everybody in the world, but they don't think that they're going to. They don't start, they don't announce their iPod saying, hear this, everyone in the world, <laughs> every single last one of you, no matter where you are, nobody talks like this. Not even our president. There's even, an, there's even a limit to American exceptionalism. You can't even imagine the State of the Union address or whatever address, some address being started by an American president. It's only slightly less ridiculous to imagine George Washington talking like this. Nobody talks like this. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world. God's prophets are confident And why? What's the reason for this bodacious confidence of theirs? Well, have they learned the secret of developing a good self-image? Self-esteem? Is it that they're born in New England and they're just like that? Is it because they all had great dads who taught them how to talk like men? No. It's because... They know God. They know God. They know God is to be feared. That when he speaks, all creation listens and shuts its mouth. When he commands, he is to be obeyed. He is a great king. Above all gods, all the gods of the nations are idols. The Lord made the heavens. They know God. 
And they have a sense that when they speak, they do so as his representatives, as his ambassadors, with his authority, and that they will be accountable for how they represent God to us. So they speak with confidence. They do it with fear and trembling. But not fear of you. Fear of God. Hear this, all peoples, all give ear, all inhabitants of the world. If you're the wealthiest 1% and want to learn how to protect your fortune... Hear this if you want to know how to successfully lobby for government bailout package. No. Listen, all people, if you're in the 99% of disenfranchised and disgruntled people who want to know how to get your slice of the pie. Listen, if you want to learn how to use Facebook to bring down the big government. Hear this, all peoples. Give your all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor, together. God's word is universal. It is no respecter of persons or of incomes or professions or salaries or nationalities. There is, it's just completely level. You are alive. You are a creature. God is speaking. You are to listen. Have you ever heard a more solemn introduction in your life? It can only be that what follows is of the utmost weight and importance. Nobody would speak like this unless it did not concern the most important reality, something of the essence. Otherwise, they would not speak in a way that not even the President of the United States would speak. What's he going to say? Well, let... He says, my mouth will speak wisdom. I, I will incline my ear to a proverb and I will express my riddle on the harp. He is going to speak God's wisdom, not his own, because he has inclined his ear to it. It's no good retreating deep inside ourselves to find wisdom. It exists outside of us. There is no inner light burning deep in your subconscious. There's no hidden truth down in there. Wisdom is that which is from above, from God. And yet God's wisdom is a complete mystery to us. Isaiah 55, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's wisdom is as unattainable as the furthest stars. But here, God is lowering himself to give his wisdom to you in words you can't understand. He's making his riddle clear. His incredible, unattainable truth he's giving to you. And that is of the utmost importance.
course, we can't understand it even still, even though it's clear and in a language we know without the help of God's spirit. He was involved in the writing of it. He was involved in the heart of the author. He's involved and must be involved right now communicating to you because otherwise this is foolishness to you. That's what the New Testament makes very clear. The wisdom of God is foolishness to worldlings, to the world. Unless the Holy Spirit is working right now, this is foolishness. It is not foolishness, though, no matter what you think about it. Why should I fear in days of adversity? He begins. This is the wisdom, this is where it begins. Why should I fear in days of adversity? When the iniquity of my foes surrounds me. Even those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches. Why should I fear? Days of adversity such as we live in are a great temptation to us to fear. The iniquity of our foes does surround us. You feel that acutely in a town like Bloomington, in a university community. And while it's good and right for the godly to gnash their teeth, to be just sick in their spirit with the wickedness around us, it is not God's will that we fear it. Especially when that wickedness means material gain for our neighbors. How to explain this? I, I sat in front of my computer yesterday for a very long time at this point, wondering what on earth I was supposed to say. I'm not even sure I, I understood what's going on in this psalm, this riddle of God's wisdom. And then I started to think about you. And it became very clear what he's saying. I started to think about each of you as I, as I know you. Some of you I don't know. And I thought of the sacrifices that you have made to be here in this church. I thought about first immediately because I, I love Phil and work with him every day. I thought of Phil and Amy. Phil could have a very good job making very good music with a very good choir in a very big church. He is very talented. And he's here. What is that about? I thought of Wayne Huck. He was in the first service. What I've always heard about Wayne is that Wayne took the job he has at IU because he wanted to be an elder here. It's not like a satisfying, fulfilling job for Wayne. It's not all his hopes and dreams. It is Wayne's love of this church and a sacrifice 
that he made. Brian, I thought of you and Ice Miller. What are you doing here? Brandon, I, I, Brandon Chastain, I, I was at his house a while back and we were working on something together and I don't know how this came up, but I said, what are your plans, Brandon? Because Brandon's getting a PhD in something or other. T.S. Eliot. And or he wishes it would Chesterton, but I think T.S. Eliot will do, right? Um, and he said to me, and I'll never forget it, and I love it, absolutely love it, Brandon. He said, I can't leave. This church is too valuable for my family. What's going on with that? Brandon torching his career, willing to. He's, it's, it's like completely impossible that you're going to get a job in literature in Bloomington, isn't it? Unless that's what the Lord gives you. But it doesn't matter to Brandon. He's torched his, his potential to follow Christ and to lead his family in following Christ. I thought of our elders' reputations. This is not a, like, this is not a, this is not an easy church to be an elder at, considering the community and the reputation. They're sacrificing their reputation to serve you. What's that about? You know, none of you want to admit that you've made sacrifices to be a part of this because you're, you're modest and godly. But are you really going to sit there and try to convince me and yourself that you're not tempted, Lawrence, Mary Lee, <laughs> Jeff, Amanda, Cheryl, that, that none of us are tempted to walk away? That we never go through dark nights of the soul and wonder what on earth have we done? Did I just like miss an exit or take the wrong exit or what is going on? You, do you really want me to think that you haven't often, often, and maybe today or yesterday, or right now, come within a hair's breadth of cashing in your clear note chips? If that's you, it's me. If it's you too, then you're in good company. The psalmist looks in the face of his own anxieties and fears, very real ones. I mean, implicit in this question, in this rhetorical question, why should I fear, is, the, is like an admission of fear. Why should I fear? Why should I be afraid when... And here he begins to remind himself of what's true, what's really true, God's wisdom. The riddle he's inclined his ear to and almost forgotten about. He's reminding himself. Verse 7. No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of his soul is costly and he should cease trying forever that he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. For he sees that even wise men die, 
the stupid and the senseless alike perish and leave their wealth to others. Their inner thought is that their houses are forever and their dwelling places to all generations. They have called their lands after their own names. The IU Jacobs School of Music immediately came to mind. We've named our lands, our, our accomplishments, our, our fortunes, our generous donations after our own names. But man in his pomp will not endure. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the way of those who are foolish and of those after them who approve their words. As sheep, they are appointed for Sheol, death. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. And their form shall be for Sheol to consume, so that they have no habitation. The soul! Yes, I, I remember. I have a soul. I had almost forgot that. I have a soul, an eternal soul. I am an immortal man. Jeff, uh, which Jeff was it? Big Moore, Jeff Moore. He reminded me of something C.S. Lewis said. I, and I, does somebody help me out if I get it wrong? But he's like, I don't have a soul. I am a soul. I have a body. I don't have a soul. I am a soul. I have a body. I almost forgot that there for a moment. I was almost to go back to my previous track. I was almost to go back to the Baroque violin. That's where I came from. Because I forgot there for a moment that I have an immortal, eternal soul that can never die. And no matter what I do, no matter how high up the social or economic ladder I climb, no matter how great and fulfilling a job I can get, no matter how much money I can save up, no matter how many degrees I get or from where they come, no matter how great a violinist I become, no matter where I play the violin and who with, I have a soul that can never die. I have a body that is going to. And soon, and maybe very soon. And what does it profit me if I gain the world and yet lose my soul? meaning lose it to eternal torment in hell? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? The redemption of a soul. What verse is that? I think it's, yeah. The redemption of his soul is costly. It is beyond price. Yes, I have a soul. And my soul needs Christ. For a minute there, I was thinking of this life only. I forgot. I had forgotten that it is appointed for man once to die, and after that, the judgment. 
I had forgotten that I will have to stand in front of God naked and that my secrets will be proclaimed from the rooftop. That I will have to give an account for every idle word I had forgotten. My soul needs the blood of Christ. Consider for a moment the competing claims of Christ and this world. What we learn in verse 7 is that there is a principle, there is a principle of redemptive purchasing driving all our behavior. There's a principle of redemptive purchasing that is driving, that is motivating us in all that we do. This is the kind of thing we wouldn't know about ourselves if God didn't enter in and reveal it to us and pull back the veil on our hearts so that we can see ourselves. But behind our actions, behind our working, behind our attempts to better ourselves, behind our concern for posterity, behind everything we do is a desire to purchase redemption for ourselves and for others. And we're driven on in this pursuit by our guilty consciences. We are sinners. We know that we are sinners. We know that God exists, that he is holy and just. We know that we deserve his wrath. And we want nothing more than to be out from under the weight of that. That is a... That is an oppressive weight. We want redemption from sin. The world claims that this redemption can be purchased by you. That it can be achieved. And there's a variety of methods for going about doing it. You can get educated. You can get famous. You can donate a million dollars to charity. You can name a hospital after yourself. You can drive a Prius. You can catch the Hail Mary pass in the championship game in overtime to win. Or the sports star of your choice can do it for you on the screen as you watch. These are all worldly attempts, vain, empty, hopeless attempts for redemption. Just choose the payment plan of your choice and set to work on it. But what? Verse 13. This is the way of those who are foolish. Of those after them who approve their words. As sheep they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd. This is the way of those who are foolish. What is the end of all these pursuits? These attempts at redemption. Consuming death so that you will have no habitation. On the other hand, what are the, what are the redemptive claims of Christ? What is his payment plan? Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. 
Come, buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread? And your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me. And eat what is good. And delight yourself in abundance. I spread a table before them in the presence of their enemies. My cup runneth over. I think I misquoted that, but you know what I'm saying. Come to me who all you are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, he who believes in me. As the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Jesus offers everlasting redemption for you for free. He paid for it himself with his blood. You were not, 1 Peter 1.18, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Our only hope for redemption is reliance upon the free grace of God in Christ. All other attempts are vain and empty and fruitless and hopeless and end in consuming death. What is the psalmist's hope? Who will redeem his soul? Verse 15. But God will redeem my soul. God will redeem my soul. That's what sets him apart from everyone else. Everyone else thinks their house will continue forever. It's up to them. This is all that there is. Redemption has to be seized. I must seize it or it will not happen. They're driven onto it by their guilty conscience. They can't help it. But God will redeem his soul. Verse 7. No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly and he should cease trying forever. Give it up. Cease. Now, forever, turn to Christ. That's the message of the psalm. Remember, though, and this is crucial, remember what Jesus said in Matthew 6. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Wealth is a placeholder for all worldly securities. You cannot have it both ways. You either torch your life now, torch all of that, all of that pomp, all of those vain attempts at redemption. You either torch that now and have everlasting life later, or you give yourself to pomp and self-purchasing 
of your redemption and torch your life later. There's, there is no two ways about it. There's no spreading the, the gulf. These are two completely opposed philosophies, religions, truths. Give it up. Cease trying forever. That is God's command to us. It's a command to turn to Christ and to buy what you can't buy without money to just come. Free lemonade. What's the application of this for us? Remember that this psalm is is a musical sermon. It's not a musical prayer. And like any good sermon, section at the end, is application. It says, do not be afraid when a man becomes rich. When the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not descend after him. Though while he lives, he congratulates himself. And though men will praise you when you do well for yourself, he shall go to the generation of his fathers. They will never see the light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. So number one, don't be afraid when your neighbor, when your Christian, when Joel Osteen becomes rich, don't be afraid. Don't envy the wicked. Don't be shaken. Don't be disturbed. Every commentator I read said this. And it's something that, like, we don't like. God often fattens up the worldly for destruction, for slaughter. That's what they all said at this point. So don't envy them. God is teaching you by giving them those kinds of gifts that those are not the kind of gifts that you want. Are you with me? Christ's blood alone can save you. Hold fast to Christ. Don't be shaken off from it. Don't be tempted away from him. Christ's blood alone can save. If if I have Christ, I have everything I need. I am satisfied and I know, as the psalmist knew, that God will receive me. Don't be afraid when a man becomes rich. When... They live according to the world's rules and benefit because of it. And you don't. Don't worry. Don't be afraid. Don't be alarmed. If God chooses to glorify himself in your poverty, God chooses to glorify himself in your poverty. But you are not shaken off your security. It is Christ alone who can offer that to you. And if you have Christ, remember that song, you can have all this world. Give me Jesus. And then lastly, I want to say this. Look at verse 18. Though while he lives, he congratulates himself. And though, that's worldly men. And though men praise you when you do well for yourself. Beware of flattery. Beware of it. The minute you start to play by the world's rules, they are going to love it. 
that is when congratulations will start for you. If you don't have congratulations, it's actually a positive thing. (laughs) And be wary of congratulations. Because they will come when you start to do well for yourself. Are you with me? I wish I had more time to open that up. I don't. We have to end. Be wary of them. I Imagine being an elder in this church. And how many people in this town would l- just love one of our elders to walk away? The congratulations that would come into their life would be unbelievable. And for you in some way too. Be wary of those kinds of congratulations. And then very lastly, in this world you will have trouble. But take courage. What? Take courage. I have overcome the world. Their end is destruction. Your end, everlasting life. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word. We praise you for revealing it to us, for bending low. And now we praise you, Father, that you have bent low further to offer to us this supper that we're going to receive. We thank you for your goodness. Would you bless this time that we would grow, be fed truly and spiritually in the ways that we need. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.